0: Amen. If you would turn to Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2, if you have access to a Bible one way or another. And we want to conclude our celebration of this Advent season by looking at Matthew's account of what happened uh, after the birth of Christ. When I was growing up, a popular saying back in Louisiana was don't talk about religion and politics, especially at Christmas gatherings, because you know, Christmas isn't about religion or politics, really, is it? And yet Matthew chapter 2 says that Christmas is very much about both religion and politics, but in the best way possible. And so that's what we want to look at is Matthew chapter 2, and think about what that has to say to us as we celebrate Christmas this year. So let me read for us Matthew 2, and then we'll pray again as we look at this passage. But uh, join me in reading Matthew 2. Verse 1 says Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled. And all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what has been written by the prophet, and you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel." They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. After coming into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell to the ground and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, the Magi left for their own country by another way. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child. And his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night and left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. Then when Herod saw that he had been tricked by the Magi, he became very enraged and sent and slew all the male children who were in Bethlehem and all its vicinity from two years old and under, according to the time when he had determined from the Magi. Then what had been spoken through Jeremiah the prophet was fulfilled. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, And she refused to be comforted because they were no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up, take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, He was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets, he shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we can gather uh, today to worship you and especially to gather on Christmas Day to remember uh, the very first Christmas when you sent your son to become fully human, and yet still being fully God. And he came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, to save us from our sin. And he came to reveal you as the king of the universe, and to reveal what the king of the universe truly is like. And so we pray that as we celebrate today, that you would open our eyes to see the king in all his glory and that we would all bow the knee in worship of him as we see reflected in this story. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, what I'd like to talk about is the fact that Christmas is about more than just giving gifts and um, celebrating with family and friends, as important as that might be, as wonderful as that is, and we all enjoy that, and I'm sure we're going to have... the remainder of our day will be filled with those things, and that's there's nothing wrong with that. And yet if we stop there, we would be missing the whole point, right? And hopefully that's why we're here this morning, is that we know that the point of Christmas is more than just gift-giving and uh, gathering with friends and family to eat pie and all those wonderful things. And so what we see here in this story is, the, is about the fact that uh, whereas in John chapter 1, John in his gospel starts off by saying that the baby that was born in a manger was more than a man, more than a baby, was actually God in the flesh. And then the next Sunday we talked about the fact that uh, this baby was born to a virgin, which was meant to highlight the fact that this uh, human that was born was born in a different way that he might be sinless that he might do what we talked about the third Sunday, which was to be a savior for sinners. And yet the reality is uh, this God, man, savior is also king. And the receiving of his kingship is key to enjoying the salvation that he has promised to bring. So what we find in the first 12 verses is that we find two kings talked about. We find Herod the king and we find the newborn king being talked about. So immediately we find a clash between kingdoms. And so the Magi, in other translations, is called wise men. The wise men come from afar. Um, they uh, probably were from Persia or Babylonia. They were probably um, astrologers and philosophers who gave counsel to kings. They weren't. Kings themselves, even though we sing about we three kings of Orient are, they weren't literally kings themselves, but they probably were closely associated with kings and were counselors to kings, but they were men who looked to the stars for various reasons and they saw a star rise. And many times they understood that when a star was seen that was not familiar, it must have meant that there was someone of significance that had been born. And somehow they associated with the rising of an unusual star, uh, associated that with the birth of the Messiah. And it could be that it was through the witness of Daniel, both to the Babylonian kingdom and the Persian kingdom, that they realized that there would be the birth of a king, and that that king would be, uh, identified through this means and if you look at certain scriptures in the old testament you can see how they could understand that to be the case and so they be they arrive in jerusalem they begin asking people so where's this king certainly you know how could you not know that there's been a king born to you and obviously nobody knows and herod the king hears about that and he calls in some Experts, the chief priests and the religious leaders, and he asks them, so where is this king supposed to be born? And they say he's supposed to be born in Bethlehem. So he tells the wise men to go to Bethlehem, and then he tells them, let me know where you find the baby, because I would have worshipped him too. And the reality is, though, Herod the Great had no intention whatsoever of worshipping that baby. And we'll see later on in the passage that that is truly the case. But what we have initially is just the declaration that a king has been born. And the issue of kingship is one of those things we're not real familiar with, but it's important because many times in the Old Testament and in the ancient world, a good king was the promise of peace. Not just the, the absence of war, but the presence of prosperity, And so to have a good king was a good thing. And people wanted a good king. And they longed for a good king. And they wanted the peace that a good king could bring. There's a a poem that was written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow. Uh, He entitled his poem Christmas Bells. Somebody later on, about 10 years later, uh, put it to music. And we know it as the song, I Heard the Bells on Christmas Day. And the first three Uh, Verses of that poem that he wrote that became the song are a reflection on Luke 2.14, which is what we looked at last week, where it says in the King James Version, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, good will toward men. And so the verses he wrote uh, say this, I heard the bells on Christmas Day, their old familiar carols play. And wild and sweet the words repeat, Of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And thought how, as the day had come, the belfries of all Christendom had rolled along the unbroken song of peace on earth, goodwill to men, till ringing, singing on its way, the world revolved from night to day, a voice, a chime, a chant sublime of peace on earth, goodwill to men. And so, the point is that when we think about the coming of a king, We ought to think about it in the way they would have thought about it, it. especially the Messiah king, because the Messiah was to be a king who brought peace, brought joy, brought happiness, brought all that people longed for. And we can see that reflected in what Jan read this morning from Isaiah chapter 9. A child will be born to us, and there will be no end to the increase of his government and of peace, because he will reign on the throne of, of David, so the angels announced the birth of a savior king who would bring peace. Uh, it says in the Old Testament that the Lord is king. The Lord sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever. C.S. Lewis, who was an atheist and then became a Christian, became one of the greatest Christian apologists we've ever known. Uh, talked about the issue of both um, democracy and monarchy having a king, and he talked about the fact that he believed in some kind of democracy where people were involved in the ruling process, but he didn't believe in it for the same reason that most people did. He said people like Rousseau and others believed that the reason why you shouldn't have a king, but you should have people in a democratic kind of uh, government was because people were basically good And therefore, they all deserve to be a part of the rule. Well, C.S. Lewis says, you know, I I don't deserve to rule a hen house, much less a nation. And he said the reason for that is because of the fall of man. That uh, in order to um, have a good king, you have to have someone who is not a sinner, And so his reason for wanting a kind of democracy was not because he felt everyone was good, but because he knew everyone was not good. And that if a person was elevated to the point of having extreme or absolute power, that that power would indeed result in them being corrupt and them abusing that power. And yet he also said he was glad that... Britain had a monarchy, even though it still had a democratic form of government. So why would he say that? He said that because um, medicine should not be seen as food. Democracy was medicine for the problem of sinful man. But the monarchy was a reminder of the fact that what we long for is really a good king. It's an interesting take on it. He says that uh, a man's reaction to monarchy is a kind of test. He says, um, there is that which is within man that craves inequality. What kind of inequality? Inequality of being able to follow someone who's truly a good king that can be depended on. And he says, we see the fruit of that desire in other ways when we deny or reject monarchy. He says, where men are forbidden to honor a king, they honor millionaires, athletes, or film stars instead. Even famous prostitutes or gangsters. For spiritual nature, like bodily nature, will be served. Deny it food, and it will gobble poison. So there's something within us that desires to worship and desires to bow the knee. And if it's not to a king, it will be to someone or something else. Which just highlights the fact that the Bible in the Old Testament highlights the goodness of kings in various ways. And that's why people longed for a good king. You might remember C.S. Lewis wrote uh, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And in that story, Aslan is the lion king. And at one point, Mr. Tumnus says, remember Lucy he's not a tame lion, but Lucy says, yes, but he's good. What does that mean? A tame lion is a, a lion you can control, that you can train to do your will. God, Jesus, is not a tame lion king. You cannot train him to do your will. You can't manipulate him. You can't force him to do your will. You might think, well, that's scary. Well, if I'm fallen, what's scary is me being able to do that. But if he's perfectly good, then he's the kind of king I want. We're just under the illusion that we're the perfect kings when we're not. He is the perfect king that our hearts long for. That's why uh, when Sa- uh, Solomon became king, Um, the queen of Sheba said this about his kingship. Blessed be the Lord your God who delighted in you, setting you on his throne as king for the Lord your God, because your God loved Israel, establishing them forever. Therefore, he made you king over them to do justice and righteousness. If God sent us a king, why did he do that? Because he loves us. He sent us a king out of love. And it was an act of love when he sent us a perfect king. Someone else has said this. Modern people in the West struggle with the idea of Jesus' absolute authority because we have abolished monarchy, kingship, and our political lives. When we come to Christ, we almost always come looking for someone to help and love us, not to rule us. But we must receive him as a ruler. Democracy is good for society, but it is not the ultimate nature of spiritual reality. So in a fallen world, some kind of democracy, constitutional republic, involvement of the people and not all the power in one person's hands is a good thing because of the fall. But the nature of the universe is not that way. The nature of the universe is God is king and he's, he's been king forever. He will always be king. And he showed up in the person of Jesus on Christmas morn. And so we celebrate in Christmas the birth of the king. And yet the reality is the the world has not received her king, at least not all the world. And we see that reflected in this story that the initial reception of the king was mixed. On the one hand, you had the uh, wise men worshiping the king, but you also had King Herod trying to destroy the king. And so we see that an angel appears to Mary and Joseph, tells them to go to Egypt. That's because Egypt was close. There were actually a lot of Jews in Egypt at that time. And um, it was to fulfill scripture that God would call his son out of Egypt. And we see happening here Herod sends assassins to Bethlehem to kill all the little boys two years old and under. He had already talked to the magi, the wise men, and said, so when did you see this star first arise? And they said, well, we saw it at this point in time. It could have been as long as two years before, or it might have been only two months before. Because King Herod was both capable and cunning and cruel. He was terribly cruel. He had a couple of his wives killed, had a couple of his sons killed, another son killed after he killed the babies here. He was so disliked that he knew that when he died, people would celebrate, they wouldn't mourn. So he arrested a large number of Jewish leaders and said, when I die, kill them. Because I want there to be some mourning when I die. He's an incredibly wicked, evil man. And he would not allow any threat to his power and authority. And so he went after Jesus. And the Lord rescued um, Jesus, sent him to Egypt. And yet these babies died. And it says, Rachel... Wept. Now Rachel had been dead for a long time. Rachel was the wife of Jacob. Yet Rachel, uh, Rachel represented the nation of Israel, and it refers to when Israel was sent into exile. People wept. Jesus was sent into exile, and people wept at the same time. I mentioned earlier the uh, poem by uh, Longfellow. Um, Back in the 1860s, he was in his 50s. He's married to his second wife. His first wife had died in childbirth. He's married to his second wife. And in 1861, uh, his second wife caught her dress on fire, got severe burns, and died. And he tried to put out her dress as she was burning Uh, and actually got severe burns on his own body so that he couldn't even attend her funeral. And so that was in 1861. He had that very tragic uh, experience in his own life. He stopped writing, evidently, at that point, even though he was the most famous poet in America at the time, very well known. And then in 1863, his oldest son decides he wants to join the Civil War. He wants to fight on the side of the Union Army. And so he goes off to war and he gets shot in the left shoulder and the um, bullet travels in such a way that he comes that close to being paralyzed for the rest of his life. And that happened at, at the early part of December 1863. And then it was in December on December 25th, 1863, that he wrote the song or the poem at that time, Christmas Bells. So the first three stanzas talk about peace on earth, goodwill to men, reflection on Luke 2. But then he goes on in the next three verses, and in light of the experiences that he had, in light of all the people who were dying in the Civil War, he says this, Then from each black accursed mouth, of peace on earth, goodwill to men. He thought about Luke 2.14. It says, peace on earth, goodwill to men. And he realized that it's kind of in contrast to things like Matthew 2.16, where it says, Herod killed all the little boys two years and under in Bethlehem. So where is this peace on earth? that this king was supposed to bring. Why isn't there peace on earth? Well, some of us think the reason why there's so much evil and suffering is because there's a divine deficiency. God must not be all loving and all good. But that's not the real answer to why there's so much evil and suffering. That wasn't the answer to why there was a civil war. It wasn't the answer to why his son was almost paralyzed or his wife burned to death. It was because that we live in a fallen world. And you could say, in a sense, it's the collateral damage from the insurrection that has taken place. it's an insurrection by Satan and an insurrection by fallen men. We've rebelled against the king of the universe. You actually see that kind of understanding of things in Psalm 2, where it says, the very first part of it says, Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us tear their fetters apart and cast away their cords from us. That's the nature of life in a fallen world. God is king, Jesus is truly king, and yet we don't want him to be king. We don't believe he's good, we don't believe he will do us good. But it says at the end of Psalm 2, how blessed are all who take refuge in him, in this king. Because it says earlier, He who sits in the heaven laughs, the Lord scoffs at them. Then he will speak to them in his anger and terrify them in his fury, saying, But as for me, I've installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. And so God says, I've installed my king, and that king is Jesus. It's interesting, the the New Testament and the book of Acts, the believers in Jesus are persecuted. They're not persecuted because of what they believe by the Romans. They're persecuted by what they, because of what they believe by the Jews, but not by the Romans. But they're persecuted by the Romans. Why? Because they were a political threat. Why were they a political threat? Well, at one point in Acts 17, men who are upset, as some of uh, the believers say, these men who have upset the world have come here also, and Jason has welcomed them, and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. Saying that there is another king, Jesus, the issue for the Romans with the Christians was the issue was a political issue. It was talking about Jesus being another king and a king whose authority trumped the king Caesar or the Emperor Caesar. So we live in a world that is okay with a Jesus who is willing to serve us and save us and love us as long as he doesn't rule us. There's a poem that was written. It's called The Night Before What's It? And this is the way it goes. And it kind of reflects the culture that we've had over the last uh, decade at least. It said, says, "'Twas the night before Christmas and all through the land, we still mark the birth of the one who is banned." From public discussion or public display, get rid of the Christ child, but still keep the day. So public school children must practice with stealth those carols which threaten our strange commonwealth. And now and again, someone's runaway crèche will abruptly appear in some government place, right out in the open where children can view this threat to the folks at the ACLU. So drink to the health of our once happy nation and deck all the halls with strange litigation. Then eat all you want to, drink rum by the court. But don't say that name or you'll wind up in court. Pretend that this holiday just always was. Don't ask whence it came like a smart child does. Just talk about Rudolph or Santa's small elves or sing little ditties of days bunched in twelves. Now, this is all right because, please get this straight, there's no separation of North Pole and state. So sing all you want of this sort of stuff in the public arena Folks can't get enough. If you do sing the carols, then please just be careful. Look over your shoulder, keep watch, and be prayerful. Edit those carols, avoid our law's curses. You'll have to leave out quite a few of the verses. So you won't get the secular humanists riled with songs about sinners and God reconciled. Be near me, Lord Jesus, I ask thee to stay. Angers the people for the humanist way. But if you believe the time is now ripe to stand up for Christmas, don't sit there and gripe. The secular Scrooges and Grinches will hear if you say Merry Christmas with all the right cheer. It's time to be counted for what's good and right. To all Merry Christmas, to all a good night. Now the poem is meant to reflect the fact that our society in general is okay with certain aspects of Christmas. Unless those aspects of Christmas seem to threaten something, seem to threaten their life or their government or their vision. The reality is what threatens us is our own foolishness, our own desire to have our own way. That's what threatens us. Jesus came to rescue us from ourselves, to set us free to enjoy what our hearts really long for, and that's what we see in this last point that I'd like to make. In the last uh, verses of the chapter, uh, we just see the beginning of the rest of the story. Obviously, there's a lot more to the story. That's why we celebrate Easter. Um, this is just the beginning of the life of Christ. But it talks about when Herod died, which is about 8, April 4th, 4 BC. An Angel appears to Mary and Joseph, and they go back into the land of Israel. They don't settle in Bethlehem because Herod's son is there and he appears to be just as cruel as his dad and so they end up by God's direction going to Nazareth and that's why he wasn't called a Bethlehemite but a Nazarene. I mentioned earlier the, the poem by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow three verses on Luke two fourteen, three three verses on the fact that the idea of peace on earth, goodwill toward men doesn't seem to be fulfilled through the birth of the Savior, but he ends his poem with this final verse. He says, after saying, and in despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said, for hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. Then he closes with, then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor doth he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail. With peace on earth, goodwill to men. So what is he saying? We can easily think that all the evil and suffering before Christ came and after Christ came may mean there's something wrong in the Godhead, may mean that the coming of Christ wasn't really anything significant but if we thought that we would be misunderstanding what had to happen for there to be a rescue from evil and suffering later on in the new testament we see that jesus in the book of revelation is pictured as a lion and a lamb and the king and that's why it says that he is worthy to open the scroll that will determine how history plays out and will bring heaven to earth. And the picture of being a lion and a lamb is, as a lion, he is king. King of the beasts, right? But as a lamb, he is what? He is savior. He came to lay down his life for us, for sinners, that we might be saved. So he's a Savior King, or a King who saves. And so what we celebrate at Christmas time is the Savior who is also the King. In Romans 14, it says his kingdom is like this The kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. I'm just kind of wrap this up, again, talking about Aslan, who's C.S. Lewis's picture of a king. Aslan, at the end of his Chronicles of Narnia series of books, has Aslan coming to bring everything to a consummation. And he is talking to Lucy and the other children, and he looks at them, Aslan does, the king, and says, You do not yet look so happy as I mean you to be. You hear what that is saying? saying, I, I am king, and I reign to make my subjects wonderfully happy, truly, fully happy. And at the end of the series, uh, Aslan says, the term is over, the holidays have begun, the dream has ended, this is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion, but the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them And for us, this is the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after, for for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia, including all the suffering, had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and which every chapter is better than the one before. That's what our king came to bring us. But he had to do it by going through the cross. And that's why he did what he did. It's interesting that uh, on this Sunday across our country, some churches are meeting and some aren't. And there was an article last week in the New York Times entitled, O Come All Ye Faithful Except When Christmas Falls on Sunday. <laughs> and they were talking about how some churches were meeting and some weren't meeting And someone in the article said, is Jesus really the reason for the season if we don't have time to worship the king? And so that's why we're here this morning. And one of my favorite Christmas carols is Joy to the World. And yet it starts out celebrating what we see in Matthew chapter 2. And actually it was written not as a Christmas carol. It's a song about the second coming. It's a song about the king returning And bringing in heaven to earth. And it starts out by saying, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room, and heaven and nature sing. There's a story in the Old Testament, in the book of Esther, where Esther has to go see the king to save her people. But Esther knows if you show up in front of the king without being summoned, He may just have you killed. I didn't call for you. You die. But after much prayer, her and others praying, she shows up and stands in the court before the king. And the king sees her, shows her favor, and extends the golden scepter. And she knows that she is welcome to come to the king and to talk to him. She knows that her life has been spared and she's been received by the king. Christmas time is the message that the king reigns on the throne of the universe and he has extended the scepter to you. The question is whether or not you will receive the king and bow the knee. And so what we find is a king who is more than willing to receive anyone who comes to him. Because the scepter has already been extended, there's no question about whether or not he will receive you if you come in repentance and faith. That's why Jesus said, Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. King of the universe says, I've already extended the golden scepter. If you come to me by grace through faith, I will not reject you and you will not be disappointed. That's what we celebrate at Christmas time. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you so much for what we do truly celebrate at Christmas time. It is a celebration of a king who has come, and a king who's come to save, who longs to be gracious to us, but who calls us to turn from our rebellion, our insurrection, and to, in faith, bow the knee, receive him as our king, receive him as our savior, receive him as the one who promises to make us fully and forever happy and to forgive us of all our sin we pray lord that all those who are here would gladly receive their king and know the joy that only he can bring we love you and we thank you in jesus name amen we're about to have some special music that will highlight the saving work of the king that we celebrate this christmas